Good morning, everyone, and good morning to you online. Uh, This morning's Bible reading comes from the Apostle Paul's second letter to the people of Corinth. Or in these days, working from home, perhaps we might uh, look at it as Paul's follow-up email to those of us all working remotely. But either way, you'll find it in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. And this morning's reading is really focusing on the ministry of reconciliation. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but, we, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister here, and a very warm welcome if you're new or you're visiting us uh, this morning. You've joined us in week three of um, week three of a series uh, looking at um, our vision for the next uh, five years and thinking about our, our uh, kind of our focus and our energies as a church. Uh, and if you're visiting today, well, that's just great that you're along and you can you can uh, take on board what we've had to say as much as it's relevant to you. Um, why don't I pray for us and then we'll reflect on God's word. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you'd apply it to our hearts and minds this morning to make us more like the Lord Jesus and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got a little um, test for you. He's, he, what do these two groups of people, vegans and environmentalists, have in common? What do you think? I mean, of course, they're concerned. I'm really buzzing. Am I, am I I'm ringing this morning up here, sound-wise? 
Um, of course, you might say, well, they care about animals and you know, created things. Of course, I reckon the thing about these two groups is they are our modern-day evangelists. Uh, if you've got a friend who's a vegan, <laughs> um, then or maybe you are a vegan. I don't want to assume anything in our group. If, if, you, if, your diet, if you're a vegan diet, uh, not through necessity but through ideology, uh, then perhaps you've had the, the inclination to share your convictions with other people. Uh, perhaps you're an environmentalist, uh, and, well, I hope we're all environmentalists on one level, but perhaps you've met someone who's got a deep inclination to share their, their convictions about our needs for the world. Now, I make no judgment about that. All, all I point out is that we have modern-day versions of evangelists, but when we come to the Scriptures, probably the great evangelist of the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Uh, and when you think about the impact of Paul in first-century um, Roman Empire, Paul was at the start of God's great work of changing a whole, uh, a whole empire. Uh, in fact, the whole world. He's the He's the one soon after Jesus' ascension who really, through him and uh, the apostles, launches the early church. So I want to think a little bit about this morning as we think about our vision, what it means for evangelism. Like, what is, what is, that, what is that in our life of our church? And at the start, we pick this, this uh, passage from 2 Corinthians 5. It's, uh, it's actually not the follow-up email. It's like the email to the email that bounced, because people often think there was a third letter between first and second. Um, at the start of this section, Paul says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. And that word is such a great description of who Paul was and, and the nature of his ministry. He sought to persuade people. Now, when we think about persuade, maybe you think about someone who gets up, a lawyer or someone who gets up and makes a, a rational argument, a reasoned step-by-step -step argument to a point. And, and in a sense, there's truth to that. But that, what's being described there by Paul is more than just a rational argument. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, describes Paul's journeys throughout um, his missionary travels. And he uses that word often to describe some of Paul's sermons or his, his addresses, persuading. But in, Luke, uh, in Acts 19.8, in fact, he says he persuaded and reasoned. And the reason, uh, the reason Paul, uh, Luke uses that is because Paul is not just making a rational argument. Persuasion is, a, is an emotional, passionate argument. And so Paul is saying here, since then we know what is the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. He is passionate, convicted, passionately convicted that he needs to bring people on board with him. Right? He's trying to sell the gospel to them, not just as a rational argument. His whole self is committed to this. Paul is a persuader. And the reason he's persuaded is very important. He says, since we know what it is to fear the Lord. What does he mean by that, to fear the Lord? Well, actually, the context of this little um, this reading is helpful. I'm just going to go back to the previous verse, which we didn't read, but is helpful just to understand where Paul's coming from, where his energy, his motivation comes from. He says, verse 10, so we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. It is that understanding, it is that understanding of life, 
of the big picture of life that motivates Paul to be someone who would describe his life as one whose primary goal is to persuade others of the gospel. Paul has a vision of life which ends with all of us appearing before the judgment seat of God. The judgment seat of God, where we have to answer for all of our all of our decisions, all of our moments, all of the little moments that we choose, whether it's in a day or it's in our lifetime as a whole, that we will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what's interesting is that when you talk to missionaries, people who who go overseas, for a lot of them, actually, one of their deep convictions is this realization that for many people, actually. Uh, everyone, actually, is appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. And they're realising that many people will appear there and will have no advocate. They will have no hope on that last day. I was reading a book about Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India. And uh, after she returned, the publishers wanted her to write a book about all of her missionary experiences. They hoped it would be one of those books which would, uh, you know, would would encourage people to go on mission. Great stories of victory on, mission, on the mission field. Anyway, she wrote a book called Things As They Are. And in, the, in that book, it was basically a story of all the trials and tribulations of being an overseas missionary. They refused to publish it for a number of years. Uh, eventually, they did. In the book, she tells about a pivotal moment in her life where she had this dream, this dream about people actually coming to this moment, the judgment seat of Christ. And so I've got a little reading from, uh, from Amy Carmichael and Nikki's going to play it for us. Listen in, close your eyes and hear her recount her dream. The tom-toms thumped straight on all night and the darkness shuddered round me like a living, feeling thing. I could not go to sleep, so I lay awake and I looked and I saw, as it seemed, this, that I stood on a grassy sward and at my feet, a precipice broke sheer down into infinite space. I looked, but saw no bottom, only cloud shapes, black and furiously coiled, and great shadow-shrouded hollows and unfathomable depths. Back I drew, dizzy at the depth. Then I saw forms of people moving single file along the grass. They were making for the edge. There was a woman with a baby in her arms, and another little child holding onto her dress. She was on the very verge. And then I saw that she was blind. She lifted her foot for the next step. It trod air. She was over, and the children with her. Oh, the cry as they went over. Then I saw more streams of people flowing from all quarters. All were blind, stone blind. All made straight for the precipice edge. There were shrieks as they suddenly knew themselves falling and a tossing up of helpless arms, catching, clutching at empty air. But some went over quietly and fell without a sound. Then I wondered, with a wonder that was simply agony, why no one stopped them at the edge. I could not. I was glued to the ground and I could not call. Though I strained and tried, only a whisper would come out. Then I saw that along the edge, there were sentries set at intervals, but the intervals were far too great. There were wide, unguarded gaps between, and over these gaps, the people fell in their blindness, quite unwarned, and the green grass seemed blood red to me. 
and the gulf yawned like the mouth of hell. Then I saw, like a little picture of peace, a group of people under some trees with their backs turned toward the gulf. They were making daisy chains. Sometimes when a piercing shriek cut the quiet air and reached them, it disturbed them and they thought it a rather vulgar noise. And if one of their number started up and wanted to go and do something to help, then all of the others would pull that one down. Why should you get so excited about it? You must wait for a definite call to go. You haven't finished your daisy chains yet. It would be really selfish, they said, to leave us to finish the work alone. Well, it's a fairly sober, sober dream to have. But I, I guess the challenge that I lay for us is that it is actually a realisation of the eternal realities that we all face that actually drives our urgency in evangelism. You see, you can't believe in a gospel that just makes your daily life better. Well, you can, but it won't compel you to evangelism. It won't. I mean, you'll do it for a little bit, but then there'll be other ways to make your daily life better. See, what drives Paul, what drives someone like Amy Carmichael is a vivid and deep sense of the eternal reality that we all face, that we will all come before the judgment seat of God. And evangelism for Paul, in part, is driven by that. Now, the challenge, of course, is you could hear that and feel the, the urgency of it, and that drives you just to efficiency. But what I want to show us is that in this picture of, of Paul understanding his ministry of reconciliation is that very word, reconciliation, which is a relational word. The way he describes it, though, though it's extraordinarily serious, is through the lens of relationships. He says, we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. And, and that word, that relational dynamic, is essential to think about the nature of Paul's ministry. It's deeply relational. Here's a great example, 1 Thessalonians 2.8, another one of Paul's letters. And in his letter, he's describing, he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, he's describing the nature of his ministry. Right? It's driven, it's, it's passionate, it's urgent, it's all of those things that we saw in verse 11. But he also says this, because we loved you so much... We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. You see, he's desperate to share the gospel. But he says, we were delighted. Not we saw it necessary, although that's true, or, or you required of us that we would share our lives too. No, we are delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And it's, this, it, it's, it's a beautiful verse, actually, because it, it captures the two dynamics of Paul's ministry of reconciliation, of what we would describe as his ministry of evangelism, which is urgency shaped by the gospel and the eternal realities that he's aware of, and at the same time, the warmth and the beauty of deep relationships. All of his life, he says, he shares with them. See, evangelism for Paul, in reaching out to people, the ministry of reconciliation is not just a ministry of efficiency, but of deep affection. I mean, even, even his urgency is driven from a love for other people. So what does that mean for us? I mean, every church, um, every church shaped by the gospel is, of course, a church that's driven to, to evangelism at some level, and so it would be... It would, 
it would be a, a glaring omission if when we think about our mission and our vision for the next five years, if there is no space for that. But what I want to see is, I guess there's two challenges. First of all, there's a real urgency for us in this. And this the ABS statistics say something like 74,000 people live in our local government areas. So that means like within 10, 15 minute drive of this building, there's 74,000 people. And if you were to believe the ABS and people's self-disclosure, then over 50% of those people have marked no religion in the last census. Now, uh, I mean, even the people who marked that they were Protestant or they were, they were, they were Anglican, uh, a lot of those people, for them, it's, it's primarily a tradition. It's a nominalism. They'll come at church or Easter. So the numbers are extraordinary. We're talking 60 70% of those people don't know the gospel. There's a, there's a ridiculous level of urgency for what sits before us. Yeah. I mean, our numbers are slowly kind of returning back. People are starting to come back to church, and that's an encouraging experience, of course. But, but this is not the extent of our mission. We can look back at, at the years that have gone past, nearly 150 years at St. Stephen's, and we can see in those great moments, we've sent out great people, we've raised up missionaries, we've had key people who've been key figures in, in the Sydney diocesan mission. Excellent. But the urgency remains. 74,000 people. I mean, most country towns have so many less people. That's our challenge. So there is an urgency. But what I also want to say is that there is a relational necessity to our ministry. And so, you know, last week we talked about, we've been trying to establish some planks of our, our vision and our mission statement. And last week we talked about praying big prayers shaped by the gospel. Great starting point. This week, I want to say that the second plank, I, I want to commend this to you, this to us as a, as a parish and as our responsibility, that the second one is bringing friends to faith. Bringing friends to faith. It's a very, it's a, it's a phrase that we've crafted very carefully because each word means something. First of all, we didn't use, for example, the word welcoming. There's, there's a value to welcoming. But welcoming perhaps implies that you might stand at the door, waiting for people to come in. Uh, but bringing means you have to go out to someone. You have to meet them where they are. You have to be a bit like the father and the prodigal son who goes to his son. We bring them, we go out to them. And they're friends. There's a relational component to it. There's a warmth to it. There is a sharing of our lives to it. And it's to faith. I mean, we are not bringing friends to community. As great as community is, it's a, it's a beautiful secondary bless, blessing of the gospel, so to speak. But remember what we said in the first week. We are committed to great things, not good things. So we're bringing friends to faith. That's our deepest desire. That's the thing that we want to labor for. It's driven by urgency, but we have a realisation that has to be a relational component. Now, here's the challenge. In the past, perhaps, what we've relied on is institutionalising that relational component. We, we have an event. It could be an Anzac Day service. It could be a, a Willoughby Public Christmas service. And we think that that somehow will do a lot of the heavy lifting for us of evangelism. That if we can get them to the service, then the person up the front will give the, give the talk that will flick them over. A and maybe that worked 30 years ago, when the church was seen as, as a place of safety, 
of assurance, a stable place where you could go, but it will not work now. It won't work now. The only way that people will consider the Christian faith as something worthwhile is when it is in the context of of relationships, of people delighting to share their lives with each other. And so we have to shift our thinking about evangelism and parish. It's not just St. Stephen's, of course. Every church is having to grapple with this. In some ways, it's easier to put on a, a standalone service. It's easy even to run an alpha course, and we'll talk about those things and their, their value still in the, in the overall picture. But it's easy to run a course like that, to be on the kitchen staff to, of that, or to set up the tables and think that we have done our part for evangelism. But to reach people... To take a ministry of reconciliation is to do it in the context of relationships. Now, that's not just our culture. That's actually the culture of Paul back in the first century. We're delighted to share our lives. It's not just, oh, now we live in a secular culture which is alienated from institutional religion. Of course that's all true. But that is actually at the dynamic of the biblical understanding of sharing our faith in the context of relationships, bringing the gospel to bear, not just to bring friends to community, but to bring friends to faith, not to bring friends to church, interestingly, although, of course, we want that, but to bring friends to faith. That is our goal, because it's faith in Christ, it's faith in the work of the gospel in our hearts and in our lives that we actually want. And you know what? The good news is it actually works. Uh, we ran the Simply Christianity course on Zoom in the middle of COVID shutdown. You would think that that is perhaps the worst place and time to be running a, an outreach. Like, who wants to do outreach on Zoom? You're on Zoom all day. And yet, we had 30 people sign up to that course and 10 non-Christians join our course. And out of those 10, nine people who have nothing to do with the church and have probably have very little to know with Christianity came to that course through invitations. One person came off the, off, um, the Facebook advertisement. And I think that's really insightful, actually, about how the numbers work. 90% of people will only consider the Christian faith if they have understood it in the context of relationships of people they respect and trust and who love them. And so I'm not saying we put aside uh, those events, but they're only effective if you and I take on the responsibility of personally investing in the spiritual welfare of our friends and family members. It does work, though. And if you, if you think, about, think about the testimonies of people who you've spoken to here at St. Stephen's who've come to faith in the last five to seven years. We went through this as a staff team earlier in the year. What was really interesting was, of course, there were courses and there were services and all those things were interesting, but it was people. There was one or two key people in each person's story who had played a significant role. They'd met with them, they'd answered questions, they'd read the Bible... They prayed with them. That's the, test, that's the reoccurring testimony of people's lives. And we cannot circumvent that. We can't circumvent it. Now, here's the challenge, of course. Sharing our faith in our time and place is actually really difficult. It's really difficult to share your faith. The reason is because we live in a time where, where people are always open to ideas. They're always open to ideas. They'll happily download a TED Talk, listen to it, and then never think about it again. People love mulling ideas. But of course, to share your faith is more than just to give them an idea, but to long to, be pers to, long to persuade people, right? To win people over. 
That's very difficult in our culture, because, especially in the area of religion, because most people think about religion in terms of like a sound desk. You turn up little parts of it. You know? I'll, have a little bit of, I'll have a little bit of Jesus and his love, and I'll have a little bit of Christian values, but I'll also have a little bit of New Age spirituality, and I'll have a little bit of um, working hard to make the best of it. And people happily create their own version of spirituality now. The problem, of course, is that when you, when you understand the gospel, the gospel is naturally restrictive and narrow. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The gospel's extraordinary gift of new creation, of hope, right? But it only comes by being in Christ, is what Paul says. Of course, it's not the only time he'll say it. He says it throughout all of his letters, that's a reoccurring phrase to be in Christ, but the point is that in the Christian faith, you, you can't have the new creation but for Jesus Christ and his work. It is naturally restrictive. And, and in our culture where religion is, I want the new creation, but, and I'll have a little bit of Jesus, but I want a little bit of my own work as well, and my own efforts, and my own, my own good moralistic tendencies. Well, the gospel says no. It is those who are in Christ who have the new creation. Now, the challenge in our culture is that that is perceived as restrictive and narrow. And in one way, it's true. Of course, the reality is that this culture that we're describing, pluralism, is itself also an ideology that's restrictive. It also has a view of how you get in and how you don't get in. And if you don't agree with it, you're wrong. Here's John Dixon. Helpfully, I might have used this before, but I think it's a really helpful quote. He says, Pluralism, in other words, claims to have discovered a bigger truth that none of the other religions has observed before. And so it then suggests that the smaller truths the religions thought they could see are in fact mistaken. So John Dixon's point is that even though pluralism and that, that kind of vision of, of choosing what's right and true in our culture seems broad and inclusive, it is also, in its own way, restrictive and narrow. You cannot be a pluralist and be a Christian, or be a pluralist and be a Hindu. You can't do it. I just say that because that's the culture we live in, that's what makes it hard, but it doesn't mean that it's a right thing. But also what makes it hard is not just culture in 21st century. Jesus said in John, he said, if the world hated you, remember that it hated me first. Sometimes sharing our faith is just plain uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable because you're obnoxious, or you're rude, and in which case, don't be obnoxious and rude. Uh, that's just a little tip. You can take that home with you. Um, but Jesus, Jesus was not obnoxious. He was not self-righteous. He was so far from self-righteous. And he brings the gospel in at the cost of his life. There, there is not, there's not a capacity to share your faith where you will always be thought of as the nice person. That's, that's just the reality of bringing the gospel into the lives of the people around you. And it means that you're risking something, you see. You're risking something. You're risking the people that you love not loving you back. That's a powerful emotion, isn't it? Paul, in verse 13, he says, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. It's a really interesting saying. He's saying, if people think I'm mad, well... That's for the gospel. And if people think I'm, 
I'm good and I'm worthwhile, well, that's great because that encourages you. In other words, Paul says, I don't care what people think about me. If it serves you, that's great. If it serves God, that's great. I don't really care what people think about me. I'm committed to this ministry of reconciliation. That is an extraordinary thing to say. Because for most of us, that is very difficult to say, I don't care what people think, I just want to give them what they really need. It's a very hard thing to say. You know, I remember when I was a little kid, I was at year eight at school, and this guy, um, he was in the year below me, and um, we, I was a boarder, and our little common room often looked out to where the bus stop was, and the day boys would often catch their bus home. This guy was, uh, he was an ethnic guy, had an ethnic name, and the group thought that it was great to make fun of his name. Right? So I joined in. I mean, the irony is extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> there I was making fun of this guy's name. If you ever watch this video and you know who you are, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, I wanted to be loved more than love that person. That's all it takes. It's all it takes, right? To lay aside your genuine commitment to someone else because you have a deep desire to be loved more than to love others. I wanted to be loved more than love others. And I tell you, that driving desire is ironically, even though, even though Paul says, and he's persuade, he wants to persuade people out of a deep love for them, knowing their eternal condition. And even though some of you might have a rich sense of the eternal condition of many of the people in your life, I tell you, even though you love them deeply, your desire to be loved will hijack your ability to love others. It will. I mean, if you're anything like me, it will. It will. It's what makes sharing our faith so difficult. It's what makes sharing something that's so good so hard. Now, one of the temptations, I guess, when we live in a world where um, it's this hard, is not to say that sharing our faith is bad. We can intellectually ascribe to that. But what we can do, what we can try to do, is to, I guess, delegate off that responsibility. And I think, I think generally speaking, uh, our, our, our communal life, not just St. Stephen's, but generally churches, we really do fall into this. This is, in fact, I think sometimes why we fall back into an organisational, uh, corporate, institutional version of evangelism, actually, because it's sometimes easier to hide behind the institution, you know, to say, for example, that Matt will drive mission. He'll do the inviting. To think that if we hire the right kind of person who's got kids at Willoughby Public, they will do the outreach for us. They will make the connections, they will build the relationships, and they will bring people into the faith and into our church community. But see what Paul says, verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is a really, I think this is a really important verse in this passage for a number of reasons. But firstly, I think it's important for this reason, that Paul may have been, I guess, starting from the from the view of him and his missionary party when he's describing his ministry of reconciliation. But as the passage goes on, what he's actually doing is he's broadening its application to any and every person who's received the gospel. 
Jesus didn't die for Paul and Luke and his missionary travellers. He died for all people. And so when you receive the gospel, you don't live for yourself anymore. Not just Paul doesn't live for himself. Not just Paul doesn't leaves behind his Pharisee lifestyle and becomes a travelling missionary, but we all give up our formerly life and live for Christ. And like I said, the challenge can be sometimes that we think that our job is there, uh, our responsibility can be delegated away, but it can't be. I mean, it's a reoccurring theme in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2, uh, always be ready to give an account for the hope that you have, Matthew 28, great passage at the end of the gospel where Jesus says, go and make disciples. He's charging the, the church just before he steps down. He's not, I mean, of course he's talking to the, to the apostles, but by implication he's laying that as the, the, the great commission for all of God's people. And so we, there is a place, there is a place for the, the organised institutional component of the Christian faith, for the corporate, for the body there is a place for it, but its place is not to take the responsibility off you and I to share our faith, to bring friends to faith. Now, some of you might have realised, if you've been here a long time, or certainly the last three years, and you've known Matt Straw, our assistant minister, that his role has changed and morphed a little bit over the last six, seven months of this year since I've been here. Uh, in, a, in a sense, Matt, well, last year, he was kind of like the acting rector. He was really drive, making sure things happened every week. And previously, he was more a generalist assistant. But this year, we've, he and I have worked together, and his role has two components. One component is kind of what we experience here on a Sunday and in our, in our gathering spaces. We'll talk about that later in the series. But the other component has been to encourage us in, in mission, in local mission. Now, what does that mean? If I've just said to us that, you know, as a community, our job is to personally take on the responsibility of sharing our friend, faith with our friends, to bring our friends to faith, what, what is Matt's role in that? Well, I think, there's, uh, I think we can describe it as three things. Firstly, his job is to equip us. And the Zoom course that was, uh, was, uh, Stephen was praying about in our prayers is an example of that, where Matt is just... Uh, a group of people who are engaged and keen to kind of um, get better at understanding how to share their faith, get together with Matt, and they're working through uh, a book at the moment, thinking about what it looks like to do that in a way that's respectful and loving and effective. So he, part of his job is to equip us. Secondly, his job is to help us think about in, what I describe as intentional environments. See, there is a place for an Alpha course or a Simply Christianity course. There is a place for a carol service or even an Anzac Day service. But only if they become places which actually encourage and foster relationships which lead people to faith, which bring friends to faith. They can only be a place, they can, they'll be useful if they're actually places which foster that. If you look at someone's testimony, Alpha itself is rarely the, the tool that brings someone to faith. It's, it's the people they sat with. It's the friend who sat with them and answered the questions, who went through the course with them and then had coffee with them each week afterwards and answered all their questions and struggled with them. That's where the power of those moments is. And so Matt's job is to help us create those environments, but we cannot delegate that off to that moment. We have to continue to take responsibility. And thirdly, we think his, his role kind of involves encouraging us Maybe, maybe you've got 
Jimmy, your friend, or Jenny, your friend. It's fairly generic, isn't it? Um, and you have a heart for them, but you need someone who will just check in with you, pray with you about them, encourage you to take the next step with them. Maybe you need someone who will give you the right, the right book or the right little video clip to, to have a chat about, to answer one of their questions. That's Matt's. That's part of what Matt's there for, to help us do that. But you see, his role is not to take the responsibility off us. It's actually to, to equip us, to provide intentional environments, and to encourage us. And I think, with Matt's help, God could do a great work. Because actually, you see, what we're doing then is we're saying, we have tens and tens and thousands of people to reach, and one guy is not going to do that. But 160, 170 of us committed to this task of bringing friends to faith, we won't reach all tens and tens and thousands of people. We need other churches to do that too. But we'll reach a lot more people than any single gifted evangelist would do. And so I really want to commit this to it. This is not a ministry for the few, but for all. Bringing friends to faith. Having said all this, I want us to finish reflecting on what the motivation is for evangelism in this passage. It's this beautiful verse, verse 14. He says, for Christ's love compels us. This is such a crucial verse. Of course, the vision of the great judgment seat of God and all of us coming and standing before God is, is an important vision, but the gospel is not just the judgment seat of God. Remember, we talked about it last week. It's the throne of grace. And the thing that actually will compel us to share our lives, even at great cost to ourselves at times, is not even our love for Jesus, let alone our love for other people. Because he could have said, for my love for Christ compels me. He could have said that. There's some truth to that. But Paul very specifically says, for Christ's love compels us. That's the gospel. That is a grace dynamic right there for christ's love compels us and then he goes on to fill out what that love is he said god made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of god martin luther called this the glorious exchange the glorious exchange where jesus christ sinless perfect unblemished takes upon himself all of the blame, all of the guilt, and all of the shame. All of it. So that he would be sin, he says. He takes on the very thing that he is opposed to, that is the opposite of him. He takes it on. So that you and I could have the very thing that is the opposite of us, the righteousness of God. You know, Jesus Christ. There's this moment in the Gospels where it says, just as he's dying, it gets deathly dark. I think it gets deathly dark because it's a, it's a reminder that Jesus is about to plunge himself into the great darkness of hell itself and face all of the judgment, all of the isolation, all of the forsakenness of God for us. And here's the thing. The richer... The richer we understand verse 21, the richer we believe the gospel, and I can't get away from this in this series, 
that the motivation for all of the things that we need to do as God's church is a deeper appreciation of the grace of the gospel. The deeper appreciation of everything that God is offering us. Because the richer our appreciation is of God's love for us, the fuller our hearts will be and the more ready we'll be able to pour them out. We won't look to other people to fill them up again, you see. We'll be able to love people even when it risks them not loving us. We'll be ready to love them. But the key, the key, the key, over and over, can I say this? I cannot, I cannot emphasize this enough. The key to all of the Christian life and the key to sharing your Christian faith is appreciating the beauty of the gospel and God's great love for us. Let me pray. Kind Heavenly Father, we marvel at the depth of your love for us, that your only Son would hand himself over for us, become the very thing that he is completely opposed to for our sake, that he would throw himself into the great gap, the great abyss of judgment and hell, so that we might be held back Heavenly Father, fill us with a deep appreciation, deep love for your love. And out of that, send us out. Make us people who bring our friends to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.